in the scripture for uh, inspiration. If you're able to please rise and we can read uh, the scripture together. Today's scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He bought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not, as you wish. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Andreas heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young man who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was there, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The word of God. Please be seated. A loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we get to be part of your story, that we get to experience what happened in the life of the early church. So help us, O oh Lord, to learn what we need to um, from this passage. So to that end, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. So we have been journeying through the book of Acts. Last Sunday, we looked at the end of chapter 4, where the early Christian community was um, its best, most ideal state. There was an incredibly high level of unity of mind and spirit. There, they had boldness to witness, um, and to preach the word of God. And they had a community in which we are told that there were no unmet needs. As a result, the author declares that God's great blessing was upon them all. That kind of blessing, I hope, is the goal and desire of anyone who is walking the Christian life. But even in those days, it was not like 100% of the members of the church were of the same mind and spirit. There will always be problematic individuals everywhere. 
Ananias and Sapphira were a couple who were not of the same mind and, and uh, spirit as everybody else, as we see in this story. And God chose to use them as negative examples and a warning for everyone. But this is also a very unique story that has almost no exact parallels in any other part of scripture. And so it is one of those stories that are extremely difficult to interpret. Yet it is important, it is an important story because it is meant to teach us something. So that is what we're gonna wrestle with today and examine how God is speaking to us through the story. When dealing with difficult territory, it is always helpful to start by defining the boundaries, by defining what it is not. So that's where we are going to begin. Firstly, I want to point out that this story, the story of Ananas and Sapphira, the story of their sin is not, um, it is not describing the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. Why? Because one of the requirements that it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin is that you attribute to Satan what is actually an act of the Holy Spirit. An example of this being where Jesus exercised a man in Matthew 12 and the Pharisees were saying, well, what Jesus did was actually only uh, an act of Belzebub, the prince of demons, right? Um, and Jesus replies, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what Jesus is saying is that it is possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and that is the unforgivable sin. But when you're dealing with the unforgivable sin, there are things about this act that fall outside the parameters of the gospel. That is why the gospel can save everybody, but it does not. But this is something that only God knows and only God can speak to definitively. As human beings, we are not in a position to declare something as an unforgivable sin, and we should be dealing with the subject in great, with great caution. When it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, what is going on is that they were lying to Apostle Peter. And Peter, in verse 4, points out to Ananias that his actions amount to lying to God. In verse 9, Peter tells Sapphira, that what she was doing was testing the spirit of the Lord. As a result of this confrontation, they were so shaken by how they were exposed that they go into a state of shock and die. This was severe judgment from God. But we are not told that they were by any means receiving an eternal condemnation for their act. What we see is that they were being judged immediately in this lifetime, uh, so as to serve as a severe warning to everybody else that they should not even dream of lying to God. But they did not blaspheme the Holy Spirit or commit the unforgivable sin. 
Secondly, this story is also not about Apostle Peter cursing Ananias and Sophia. Notice nowhere in the sto story does Peter spell out some disaster on them from his mouth. Now, this incident is not like the story that you will see a little later in Acts chapter 13, where Apostle Paul pronounces the word of destruction on a false prophet called Bar Jesus. In this case, Peter does what, what Peter does is he confronts Ananias at that point. They could have confessed their sins and repented of it. That is not what happened. What happened was that they were so shocked by the fact that they were exposed that they, um, they kind of, uh, and I'm only speculating, I mean, they, um, they were so shaken that God, thought, that God knew the truth of their actions that they possibly had a massive heart attack and died instantaneously. Whatever happened, it is important to note that it was not the result of some sort of curse that was pronounced on them by Peter's mouth. Now, why are these boundary conditions uh, or what, is, what the story is not about important? Because if we think of this story as something that happens extremely rarely in the Bible, it is easy to think that it is outside of the normal day-to-day -day functioning of our lives and therefore minimize the significance of this story for us. On the contrary, I'm going to make the case today that Ananias and Sapphira's uh, sin is a very common one and therefore something that we have a great deal to learn from for our own lives. So let's look at what the sin really is. We are told that Ananias and Sapphira sold their property and pledged to donate all of the proceeds of the sale to the church. Doing something like this would have placed them in a group of those who were highly esteemed in the church of the time, right? They would, it would have placed them in the same league as the positive example we've seen at the end of chapter four of, uh, of Barnabas. But there's a problem uh, with making a pledge of this uh, scale. Making a grand pledge is easy because it's just something that you do with your lips. Following through is the difficult part because acting on that pledge would have taken a lot of sacrifice. For example, if that land provided some income, then they would have to be able to manage without that income. We don't know if it was part of the income they had or if it was all of the income that they had. We don't know that. But the loss of that asset would have moved them from being financially independent to maybe in some way being financially dependent on the church or on God in a way that would have pressed them to a new level of uncertainty and even trust in God that would have been very uncomfortable for them. In India, there's a group of people um, who come from a place called Udupi in the south of India. Now they make, um, they have made a certain 
um, set of foods very popular in the whole country. And as a result, there is a whole uh, a chain of restaurants called Udupi restaurants that are, um, are very popular. And this, and this chain of restaurants was established in India when chain restaurants were unheard of in India, right? Um, but what made these restaurants really successful was not just because they had good food that everybody liked. The most important secret sauce to their success was that they were a very close-knit community and they would help each other out tremendously. So for example, when a young person in the community started out in a new city or neighborhood, um, started out to set up a restaurant, they would need significant amount of financial and business help to get started, right? But what would happen in those days is that all of the other restaurant owners, the Udupi restaurant owners, would pool their financial resources and provide the entire capital that this youngster needed to start uh, his operation free of charge. This was not a loan, it was a grant. It was given to him. They would also provide bookkeeping help, provide the cooks, provide expertise, provide everything that this person needed. The only expectation was that when this newcomer would become established and become financially successful, then when somebody else came up with the community that needed help, then he would commit to also pooling all the resources he had without any condition to help this new person. You can imagine that um, when you have difficulty in setting up a business in a highly competitive uh, environment, then this kind of cooperation would give this chain of restaurants a leg up that would ensure that they were successful, right? Now in the early church, I believe it's a similar dynamic that is, that is unfolding. It was not a difficult competitive environment in a sense, but it was an environment of persecution. But whatever difficulties those, those early, uh, the early church Christians faced, when a new person came into the church and he had all of those financial struggles that I had described last few uh, sermons, in the face of those extraordinary challenges, it is this extraordinary level of cooperation among individuals and the network of local churches that made them incredibly successful. Everybody was making sacrifices, and so everybody was taken care of. And to make this work, everybody had to be extremely united in mind and spirit. And that is what the early church did. And it is because of that, that in this very, very difficult environment, this church managed to thrive and flourish and grow the way it did. But at the level of the individual transaction, if you're going to sell your assets and declare that you are going to donate all of it to meet the needs of the church community, it would have been a very big deal still. People would be very appreciative of so big a, a gift, a sacrifice, right? That's the external story. That's what people would see. And that's what the individual who's making this declaration would feel. 
But what if there's more to the story? What if there's another story that was going on inside of Ananias and Sophia? What if they desperately wanted everybody to think as highly of them as they thought of Barnabas? At the same time, they were not comfortable with what it meant financially um, to do what they had pledged to do. They were not comfortable in living with the consequences of their decision. As, as a result, they made a plan. And the plan was to keep a portion of the proceeds for themselves in a way that nobody would know. Now the scripture does not tell us what percentage of the proceeds they kept for themselves. Was it 10%? Was it 50%? Was it 80%? We don't know. What we do know is that they kept something back in secret. Because secretly, they must have thought that having a financial cushion was what would save them when it came to a rainy day or when it came to their retirement or whatever reason they may have had in their mind. That was the story that was going on inside of themselves. When you put the external story and the internal story together, what you see is that Ananias and Sophira wanted to have it both ways. They wanted the oomph of being in the Barnabas club, but they were not ready for the financial sacrifices or the level of dependency on God that would take to sustain them if they followed through on their pledge fully. This, friends, is the inside-outside disconnect that is being revealed to us in the story, I believe. I mentioned earlier that this particular story is very unique in the Bible, but the thing that is not unique is this inside-outside disconnect. It is a very, very common condition. Most people project certain things on the exterior and mean something else on the inside. For example, Bill Gates gives away a lot of money to a lot of good causes, and that's all great. But we know today that a lot of what he did was to angle for rec the recognition of a Nobel Peace Prize. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Hitler, who hated the Jews and, wanted, and built factories to exterminate them. But on the outside, he did not project himself as a killing machine, but as the savior of the German people, right? These are extreme cases, but they do cover two extremes, extreme philanthropy to extreme fascism. And it is not difficult to see how this disconnect between the inside and the outside operates in every case in between. You will remember that in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus Christ talks about this disconnect when he describes the Pharisees as hypocrites for being like cups and dishes that are clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside with greed and self-indulgence. But here's the thing. A redeemed person who has been washed clean by the extreme sacrifice of the Lamb of God is supposed to be different. That is because a Christ follower is someone who has been turned inside out, right? A Christ follower is someone who declares to the world that there is nothing good in us, that we are sinners that deserve nothing less than death, that our insides are as bad as it gets, 
and that Christ has died for our sins to make us clean, right? No Christ follower ever said, Christ died so that my, sin, my skin could be washed clean, right? The surface dirt can be taken off in one shower. Christ's work was on our insides so that every Christ follower is in a sense exposing their insides to the world because only that um, can then demonstrate the power of Christ's work in our lives. Because that also means that Christ's followers needs to make their insides look like the outsides. Now, many in the church do exemplary things and lead commendable lives. But not necessarily all the time, right? We do fall, but we then address those issues, recover from it, and continue, hopefully, to lead authentic lives. Lives where our insides match our outsides. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira tell us that when we live in an environment of high standards, which we should do, by the way, the temptation to fake it and project something on the outside that is different from the inside is a strong one. When I am with my mentees, the temptation to gloss over the times where I've skipped my morning devotion or the times where I have harbored some ill feeling in my heart is strong. I do want to project a very polished exterior. We all have to be mindful of this because this desire to project a good look to others can sometimes sow a disconnect between our inside and outside self. And we need to catch that as soon as possible. One place where church people might do this, for example, is when we, um, when we, uh, when we offer to pray for people and then we don't end up praying for that person. You see, I mean, to forget in some instances is human. But to offer to pray for somebody without having a system to add people to your prayer list, now that amounts to the significant disconnect between your inside and your outside. There's another place where this inside-outside disconnect can affect church people. This is without intentions. There's something... I was reminded of in myself just this week. So, so let me just share this with you when it's fresh in my mind. When I decided to go into ministry, you know, I didn't declare to people that I want to serve God, right? And this is what I told myself, and I even told God. After all, I was just answering God's call to serve Him. But last week, as I was working on something for the international students, I felt that the people around me were not appreciating me for something that I had done. And as I thought about it, I began to realize that, you know, they're not likely to appreciate it because they don't actually fully understand what I actually did or why it was even necessary. But as I began to reflect on this a little further, I began to see my own hypocrisy. Because after all, I had told everybody I was working for God, but then I find myself missing the human recognition. That would make me no different from Anais and Safira. What I needed to do 
was to look at ways in which God was indicating to me that he knew what was going on. He knew what I did and he was pleased with the outcome. And I should have been satisfied with that if I had declared that what I was doing was for God anyway, right? There are many such areas that are commonly used to project a better version of ourselves to those around us. That makes the externals of the church community look better than it really is. That, in a way, is tempting others within the community to project a whitewashed image of themselves that inflict real harm on themselves and others. The church is not a place where we come to project an image, but a place of healing and restoration. And that can only happen when we bring our real authentic selves into the building. We don't want to be like that hospital in which everyone that walks in is walking in with the intention of impressing everybody else and the doctors about how healthy they are, right? In a hospital like that, everybody would walk out without any health issue being diagnosed and without any health issue being treated, right? And that leaves everyone just the same as they leave, as they came in. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, is a powerful cautionary tale about the dangers of protecting, of projecting, sorry, a false exterior. Let us as a church community grow closer to our Lord and Savior by bringing even more of our inside selves out, by bringing our spiritual struggles to light, so that people will see how Jesus Christ actually makes sick people well. Then maybe sick people can get the idea that this place may be for them as well. Let us pray. A loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We thank you for the positive examples in the Bible. We thank you for the negative ones as well. Because you know that we need both kinds. Because you know that we are a work in progress. We come into your presence not to show off to you or to each other, but to heal and to learn and to grow. So be with each one of us. Enable us, O oh Lord, to be people who can be authentic with each other and with the world around us. So that we may decrease and you may increase. Bless each one of us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.